You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. Shall we pray? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. The text today is something we'll be reading shortly, is the story of Jesus encountering a tomb, raising a dead man to life. He'll reveal himself as God, life in himself. It's a long passage out of the 11th chapter of John and starts off this series that we're preaching on the road to the cross. Several years ago, my oldest son Reed and I had backpacked into the Grand Canyon. We encountered something we could never have anticipated. We descended into the canyon's western end, where at the canyon's bottom, in a village called Supai, lived the Havasupai Indians. The tribe was carrying on a form of employment operating campgrounds for the benefit of backpackers. Well, we hiked in 10 miles on our first day, set up camp near a bright blue creek, and settled in for what we had planned to be a few days to enjoy the canyon and its incredibly blue waterfalls. The Grand Canyon is such an immense and beautiful place with unimaginable colors changing through the day as the sun moves across the sky. The size and scope of the canyon can help fix one's spiritual myopia or spiritual depression. It makes you realize how vast the world is that God rules with wisdom and love. The amazing breadth and depth of that canyon can dwarf your problems. But on this trip, we are to encounter the largest problem all of us face. After reaching our campsite by a creek, we settled in for a few days. One day we took a day hike along the creek to one of the famous falls in Havasu Canyon, and that was Navajo Falls. As we approached the waterfall, we heard a horrific screaming and wailing, wailing of people crying out in deep grief and pain. We ran to the falls and saw a number of college students frantically diving and swimming into a pool under a waterfall. One of their party had jumped into the waterfall and had not come up. Their friend couldn't swim, and the power of the water drove him deep. Reed, my son, ran over to help, but soon the young man surfaced, brought up by his fellow students with Reed, assisting in getting him out. He was ghostly white, and when they brought him up, had drowned. Reed and I did not know what to do, so he gathered the young man's crying and distraught friends around, and we prayed. After we prayed, all I could think of to say was to paraphrase a passage in Isaiah, chapter 57. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. Well, this young man had met death much too early. I found out later he was 22 years old. I had never been this close to a sudden death, especially of such a young life. What was next for him? Was he resting in peace with God, as this Isaiah passage talks of? Isaiah is clear, only the one in right standing before God can enter into that peace and rest with God. But we'll come back to this. Well, let's read together John 11:17 through 57. This is the text for today. 
But keep your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at chapter 10 a bit too. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. But when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to Jesus, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid them? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and, a, and there was a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he had been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. 
So from that day on, from that day, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of God. So let's look at the setting. We're going to focus on 11, 17 through 57, but please keep your Bibles open, as I said. As we just read, you may have noticed that believe, believes, believed, and faith appear many times in chapter 11. In fact, in all of John, outside of this Lazarus story, there appears to be no greater word count over the word believe and its variations. John is telling us by the believe repetitions that for Jesus and us, believing in him is vital in this story. John gives another interpretive clue later on to understanding Jesus in John 20, 21. After the resurrection story, he tells us that Jesus did even more signs than the seven written in this gospel. He goes on to give us a critically important interpretive clue to understanding those signs or miracles that John did write down. They were written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing in him, you may have life in his name. Now let's back up to chapter 10. At the end of 10, in John, there is a serious and dangerous tension that develops for Jesus before the Lazarus story we just read. In chapter 10, we find Jesus in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication, walking in the temple with Jews gathered around him. The feast is known also to us today as Hanukkah, and it is in part about the Jews liberating the temple from the Hellenistic king Antiochus IV in the second century BC. Antiochus IV had built an altar inside the temple, and sacrifices were made at the feet of an idol he had made in his image. He intended to desecrate the Jewish temple. For the Jews, the temple was where you met God. It was in this same temple area almost two centuries later, as the Jews were gathered around him, that Jesus is answering questions and challenges. He finally announces, I and the Father are one. They were aghast. Keep in mind, he says this during a Jewish festival to celebrate the cleansing of the temple from Antiochus IV's similar claim to divinity. Immediately, his hearers knew he was making himself to be God. They try to stone him, but Jesus gets away heads east over the Jordan River into a region where the Jerusalem leaders have no jurisdiction. And now we move to the opening verses of chapter 11, 1 to 16, and we learn that Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, is ill. Lazarus, who lives in Bethany near Jerusalem and is the brother of sisters Mary and Martha, they send for Jesus, but he delays going to Lazarus, telling his disciples, this illness will not end in death. But it does, seemingly. After a two-day delay, Jesus informs his disciples that Lazarus is now dead. And for their sake, he is glad he was not there, so they would see something that would give them more evidence to believe in him, evidence to believe that he is God's son. 
He tells them it's time to go and wake up Lazarus. With fear, the disciples tell him to do that is to walk back into the Judean territory where Bethany is just an hour's walk from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, where the Jews had attempted to stone him earlier. The disciples don't see this as a good idea for Jesus to put his life at risk to visit a dead man and his sisters. Now we move on to the challenges of Jesus. In the passage we read today, we come to the challenge that Jesus poses. He arrives in Bethany after Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. There were some well-attested traditions among the Jews at the time that through the third day after death, the soul hung around the body and there was some hope that a resuscitation might happen. But in this tradition, the fourth day, by the time of the fourth day, the soul would have departed, the color would have left the body, and decomposition was well underway. Lazarus is truly dead on the fourth day. Well, Martha hears Jesus was coming, leaves Mary behind, and goes to meet Jesus. She challenges Jesus that had he arrived earlier, Lazarus would be alive. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, she said. Then she says to Jesus, she knows he has a close relationship to God, and whatever he asks God, God will give it to him. At this point, Jesus could have said, yes, Martha, that's true. I am a prophet, and what I ask, I will receive. But instead, he answers directly as if God himself is standing before her. He says to her with authority, your brother will rise again. Martha, not quite getting it, pushes back. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, the last day in the Bible often means judgment day, and for, for the Pharisaical Jews, judgment day is the day when all will rise for God's judgment for the good or evil verdict based on their good works, being good or evil. But now Jesus pushes back. He makes one of the most significant statements in John. Jesus says to Martha in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. Note the challenging repetition of the word believe. So Jesus is saying not just that there will be a resurrection for Lazarus and all others, but that he is it. Jesus is eternal life. This is not just something God will give through Jesus, but who Jesus is himself. He is life itself. Jesus then asks, do you believe this? Be clear, this is not so much about believing if Lazarus will rise again by Jesus' power, but does she believe Jesus is eternal life and the resurrecting Lord over death itself? Well, Martha replies, she believes this. So we've seen how frequently the words believe show up in this passage, but now we come to another important theme in John, the I am statement Jesus makes. By Jesus titling himself as the I am, he's radically and dangerously tying himself to the self-identified name God declares to Moses in Exodus 3. In our English Bibles, it's sometimes spelled out Yahweh or Jehovah, but often as Lord in all caps. Sometimes in John, Jesus will refer to himself as just I am, but also will say I am followed by something. Six of these are familiar to you. I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. When he uses these, they fit the moment he is in. His self-naming as I am fits the situation that needs it. When he feeds the 5,000, he says, I am the bread of life. When healing the man born blind, he says, I am the light of the world. And now, before he will raise Lazarus in this challenge to death, he precedes it by revealing who he is, the I am, the resurrection, and the life. Jesus is revealing and claiming to be God once again. But as importantly, he is revealing God's attributes. In verses 25 to 26, Jesus announces he is the God of life, the God of the resurrection. And he asks Martha, do you believe all of this? And Martha responds, yes, she believes Jesus is God's son come into the world. In Jesus' words, his challenge to believe in him really give us no choice but to acknowledge he is the creator of the universe, God himself, or he is entirely something different. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, Mere Christianity, when he writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choices. Choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If we see Jesus, we see God. And what he is about to do for Lazarus will be a sign pointing to his divinity. John records seven signs in the gospel, and this is the seventh. And, and by many, it's considered the peak sign. Jesus the I am, God himself, is about to challenge and confront death in a man. Now that day in the Grand Canyon, none who witnessed that man's, young man's death could ignore the sting of death. The grief and pain stung deeply into that group of college kids. Well, death is that horizon on the edge of all our lives that colors everything. It's the disintegration and decomposition process that goes on around us all the time. It's the conclusion unavoidably coming to us, every one of us. And lately, that dark specter seems more present to us. Life seems very fragile right now as we face this pandemic. When you watch the news, the pandemic has a bit of a sting to it, doesn't it? And then maybe you feel an aching dullness that life will just not go on as, as it has. Well, in this passage, Jesus who has now told Martha that he is the I am of the resurrection and life, will now challenge death head on, unveiling a furious love as he walks onto the tomb of his dead friend, Lazarus. In verse 28, Martha goes and calls Mary. The teacher is calling you. Mary comes to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. These are the same words of Martha the exact same plea or complaint from both. 
But notice Jesus does not have the same answer for both. As Jesus sees Mary and the mourners weeping, he is deeply moved and greatly troubled. This can be better translated as a deep and furious anger. We know from God's naming himself in Exodus 34 that he is slow to anger. But when his anger does come, it issues from a deep love as well as his moral perfection and completeness. His wrath is against anything that harms and destroys what he loves. This is a furious love. And isn't it the same for you and me? You've probably known the power of anger and grief over those you know who are destroying themselves or being destroyed. Wrath and anger are not the opposite of love. It's a big misstep to think that. The opposite of love is indifference. And when we see what we love threatened with destruction, we react with wrath. It's war. It's a war thing. We're going after the person that's being destroyed, the object of our love. The temptation for us when anger subsides is to protect our hearts. We may withdraw from love's battle. We can grow weary of the fight and become indifferent, all the while watching someone we love self-destruct. Indifference can function like a kind of self-protection, but also functions like a subtle form of hate. It's about protecting me and not the soul of another. That indifference can be a deadly place for us to be. But God does not grow weary in his love, for God is love, and for God to be God, that love is not limited in power and strength. All his attributes, whether love, wisdom, power, and wrath, are really aspects of one essence, boundless and complete in him. He can be nothing less than himself, and God is love. So Jesus asks where Lazarus is. They tell Jesus to come. And then Jesus weeps in what is the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 37. While it is the shortest, it is powerfully revealing the love of God. The force of this weeping is more like the bursting out in tears, more like anger. It is not the same weeping of the funeral cry of Mary in verse 33 and the Jewish mourners that were with her. The wailing and weeping Reed and I heard from the college students that day at the death of their friend was probably something like Jesus' angry weeping. Jesus goes to the tomb, a cave and a stone lay across the opening. Deeply moved in anger again, he tells them to take away the stone. Martha objects. There will be a smell of death. Jesus reminds her, did I not tell you, that Martha, that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? There is that critical word again, believe. They remove the stone, and Jesus looks up to thank his Father for hearing him. Confident, God the Father always hears him, but his purpose in praying out loud to those standing around is that they may believe Jesus was sent by the Father to us. Look at verse 42. Jesus prays before them so that they may believe that God sent him. We see this final seventh sign in the Gospel of John, the raising of Lazarus, pointing to the reality that God sent Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus then cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now ponder this. A dead man is rotting in a tomb, decomposing, cannot hear, smell, or see, cannot think or feel. How does a dead man in a state of decomposition, turning to dust, hear this shout of Jesus? Who creates life out of non-living? Who out of dust creates life? Where have we seen this before in the Bible? Genesis 1. There God speaks and creation leaps into existence. What God says gets done, 
what Jesus says gets done. Jesus is the word of God. So what are the implications for the original witnesses of this event? As they watch this, some would begin to see Jesus is really God, the I am, dwelling with us. They would believe. In verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But while many believed, others did not want to believe he was God. If you look at verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Some will believe him and others will seek to put him to death. So in verse 53, it says, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. But what are the implications for us? As with Lazarus, Jesus calls us to come out of our tomb. Death is not just some far-off moment on the horizon. It is ever-present. It is that decay and corrupting hint all around us that something is terribly wrong and something wrong in us that weakens and kills. It's not outside us, but in us. No amount of social engineering or politically hopeful schemes can ever remedy the bent of the human heart. In that sense, when we get away from God and try to seek life from him, we know death. We are tearing against the grain of the universe that he created, and it leaves us jagged. Now, God is life and light. All that is not God is darkness and death. There is no third way for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a rescue operation from death, and some do not want to think they need to be rescued. For to admit that is to admit that we may have substituted ourselves for God. John Stott put it this way, the notion that we have substituted ourselves for God lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. But if we believe in this Jesus, we can come to know that love that draws us from the grave. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, puts it this way in chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But Jesus' journey back to Bethany to raise Lazarus was a journey of love. He knew making it would lead to his death. For Jesus going toward Jerusalem to raise Lazarus meant that he would be giving his life for Lazarus's. Jesus wept at that tomb not because he didn't know how this would turn out. He wept not because he was helpless, but because he loves us. God in Christ suffered for us. Lazarus had no righteousness that could justify his exiting alive from the death of that tomb. He had to have been given an alien righteousness, one not his own that he would call that would call and bring him back to life. To gain that righteousness, he had to be gifted it by the only one who is righteous, God in Christ. To give a righteous life to Lazarus, Jesus had a cost to pay. His life for Lazarus, his life for ours. Think of it this way. 
You see, like that young man in the Grand Canyon, we will all plunge into death for our sins. But God is out to rescue us. Use God's word to hear this call to you and me. Let God's word sink deep into your heart. Let's read together this paraphrase of John and the Apostle Paul. For God so loved me that for my sake he made Jesus to be my sin, even though Jesus knew no sin, so that in a grand exchange I might become Jesus' righteousness. Now put your name in those verses. Then substitute the names of family, friends, and even your enemies, especially our enemies. We met up the next day with the college kids in the Supai village and learned what we had suspected, that they were a Christian mission group. They were from Northern Arizona University. They told us that the young man was a strong believer, active in his faith, and was planning on becoming a teacher and had been doing various ministries for elementary school kids throughout college. The kids were mourning the next day, but not without hope for their friend. He had perished, and there was no denying the grief. He was taken away from them, and as Isaiah wrote, taken from all calamity of this tomb-tinged world. But the young man was righteous because he believed in the only righteous one. Well, next week and Easter Sunday, we will hear this story continued. Jesus has raised a dead man and now has a death sentence over his head, a, a sentence he will not deserve. He will do it so you and I can walk back to God, united to him in his resurrection, a resurrection we did not deserve. A furious love for the world took him down a road to the cross. Let's pray. Father, may we come to grasp the height, the depth, and the breadth of your furious love for us in Christ and to share the love that you've given to the world as you did on the cross to our friends, neighbors, and our enemies. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.